0: So it's a fantastic privilege for me to have uh, the opportunity to speak at this Workplace Sunday service. Uh, On your sheets, you'll find a handout with a lot of Bible verses and other material. And if your eyesight is really good, you might be able to find that helpful. Apparently there are some copies with larger print at the back. But for now, I'd like to introduce the topic... And then we're going to look at our reading in 1 Corinthians 15. So the question is, how do we know that the work we do for Christ is not in vain? Perhaps you're a student or at the beginning of your working life and you're enthusiastic and desperate to get on with your career. You dream about what it would be like to become a top professional. A senior partner in the business or a virtuoso artist making progress in your career, becoming financially secure, gaining status and recognition. This is what it's all about. Well, perhaps you're at risk of making work an idol, but perhaps you're already becoming disillusioned and disheartened about your own career prospects. The competition to get a rung on the ladder is too fierce You've had a load of rejections. You can't even get a job interview. You're already starting to think that you may have missed the boat. You're never going to find a worthwhile job. Or maybe you're killing yourself, working ridiculous hours in a job that seems meaningless and futile. You're a tiny cog in a massive corporate machine that doesn't seem to be doing anything really worthwhile. It's all about making money or pointless bureaucracy or office politics, or perhaps you're a lowly volunteer, or your main work is caring for children or elderly relatives. It's a -a 24-hour-a-day slog, and it's unseen, unrecognized, unvalued, and you're wondering how long you can carry on. Well, if you come into one of those categories, then I hope this talk is for you. What is work for? And how can we keep going when it seems as though it's pointless, it's futile, it's a waste of time? I just want to tell you a bit about my own work story. When I was 19, I had a spiritual crisis, and after that came a strong conviction that God was calling me to give up physics that I was studying and trained to become a doctor. And I went to medical school with a rather naive enthusiasm and optimism. It was going to be so amazing, caring for people, saving lives, being a hero. But actually, the reality turned out to be rather different. Over those years of endless hours of work, sleepless nights, watching people suffer, holding dying babies in my arms weeping at the human tragedy, at the pointless loss of life, my naive idealism was gradually crushed. And you know, that's something that's a real risk for all experienced health professionals and medics, is that we become cynical, we become world-weary, we suffer from compassion fatigue and burnout. And that's what happened to me. And as some of you know, After many years of intense pressure and exhaustion at work, I had a major psychiatric breakdown and I was admitted to a locked psychiatric ward. And at my lowest point, I came to this terrible conclusion that everything I'd worked for was destroyed, it was all wasted, it was meaningless, and it was pointless. By God's grace and the love of my wife Celia, my closest friends, and also with excellent psychiatric health and treatment, my story doesn't end there. I gradually found healing and recovery. Eventually I went back to work at the hospital, but with a new role, with much less pressure and demands, and a new way of thinking about my work. And this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 58, has always meant a great deal to me, particularly in some of those really dark periods. So there in in at the end of chapter 15, Paul is writing to reassure, encourage, and spur on the Christians in Corinth. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If we look back in this epistle from Paul, we can see that the Corinthian Christians were a rather flaky bunch. They were prone to unusual spiritual enthusiasm and arrogance, to sexual immorality, to heresies and to false ideas. And one of the false ideas they'd come up with or some had in the church was that actually this whole idea of the resurrection that Jesus had rose, risen from the dead was a myth. And so the whole of chapter 15 is a prolonged argument that culminates, it ends in verse 58. Paul is piling on the supporting evidence for why our labor undertaken for Christ, labor in the Lord, is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not futile or pointless. And his ultimate knockdown argument is because Jesus rose from the dead. So... If you look in the Bible, just look earlier on to verse 14, where Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. We've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. So, Paul says, he piles on the pathos, you know, we... If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. We are liars. You are still in your sins. Those who have died have been lost. And we are just pitiable fools. But then look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Some of the Bible commentators say that that word but is one of the great buts in the Bible. You know. There's all this, the terrible things that have happened if Christ hadn't been raised, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So Paul continues in this chapter to teach about the implications of Christ's physical resurrection, the destruction of God's enemies, the destruction of death, the nature of our resurrection bodies, and he emphasizes the picture of the seed. Look at verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It's a very striking illustration. Because if you think about it, a seed looks like a very pathetic little brown thing. And yet, locked inside the seed is all the information. In fact, a seed is pure DNA. It's all the information inside that tiny little brown seed is going to lead to that amazing blossom. And the seed is not the end of the story. And Paul is saying, and that's what our bodies are like. Our bodies are seeds, but they're not the end of the story. It's not going to end there. And so... That f- verse 58, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But why? Why does the resurrection of Jesus, a single historical event that happened in Palestine 2,000 years ago, why does that mean that, that what you and I are devoting our lives to here and now in central London, in 2022, that it's not a waste of time. It's not futile. It's not empty. It's not in vain. Why does the resurrection matter that much, Paul? And to really answer that question, you have to look at the entire story, the grand narrative of the Bible and of the Christian faith. And these are the words of Leslie Newbigin, who was a great missionary statesman, For the gospel, you have to indwell the story of the Bible as the true story of the whole world. In other words, you have to read your own story into the story of the Bible. The grand narrative of the Bible is a story and it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the full meaning of the story is only revealed in the last pages. And that's true of many novels we read, it's true of whodunits, think of an Agatha Christie. It's often not until that final pages, the final denouement, and you say, oh, that's why it happened, oh, that's what was going on then. The meaning of the entire story is revealed at the end, and it's exactly the same in the grand narrative of the Bible. It only really makes sense when we get to those final pages. And Martin Luther says, we have to read the Bible forwards, but we can only understand it backwards. It's only by understanding the end that we understand the entire story. But this great story is not only the great drama of the Bible, it's also the great drama of the cosmos. Whether most people recognize it or not. No human being invented or dreamed up this drama... It started before the Big Bang, before the foundation of the world, and it will go on forever into the future eternity, into the ages of the ages. And we, you and I, are called to be bit players in this great drama. That's the extraordinary reality. You and I have been written into this drama. And the ultimate question for each of us is whether we are going to play the bit part we've been given. The great drama will go on whether you play your part or not. But if you choose to go your own way, you will lose out. So on that handout, I've tried to give you a very short outline of the great story of the Bible. Especially as it relates to work, the labor of our hands. I know that many of you are also studying the great story in your home groups. And the outline I've, I've produced fits pretty closely with the outline you're studying in the home groups. And the headlines, the key points, the key acts within the great drama are these. It starts with creation, then fall, then the story about Israel, and then the intervention, the incarnation and the person of Christ, the church, and then the final consummation, the drawing together of everything. And this evening, I'm just going to point out a few of the key points in the drama in the hope that some of you will be stimulated to work through that handout later on. I'm going to move fast, so hang on. And if there are questions and issues that arise in your mind as we're going through it, please use the Slido and there's a chance for Q&A later. And remember the question we're asking, why does our work the toil, the labor of our lives. Why does it matter? How does what I do as a tiny, pathetic, limited, flawed, and broken bit player, how can it possibly fit into the great the great story, the grand drama of the cosmos? And it all starts with creation. And immediately we see that God himself is a worker. He's not a kind of platonic God, in eternal, mystical contemplation of the infinite verities. No, the God of the Bible is intimately engaged in the work of creation and in continuing providential care over his creation. And of course, there is the Sabbath rest, but the pattern of six days work and one day rest was not established by some occupational health guru. It was established by the working pattern of the almighty God. And then human beings are placed in the creation, made in God's image with a unique role as God's representatives. So we've been created to reflect the character and being of God to the rest of creation. One of the beautiful ideas is that we humans are the worship leaders of the creation We've been created to put into words what a wordless creation longs to say but cannot. We are the worship leaders bringing the whole of creation together to worship God. And as God's representatives, human beings are given the creation mandates. So God says to the people he's created, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the entire biological world. Because we're made in the divine image, there's a wonderful and mysterious correspondence between the human beings and the entire creation, between the human mind and the creation. That's why human beings are created to be scientists and researchers and investigators, to research and understand the fundamental laws, wisdom and meaning which lie behind the cosmos. The great... Uh, Christian astronomer Kepler said, "I am thinking God's thoughts after Him, and because we are made in God's image, our minds can actually follow the minds of the Creator. That's why science works, that, and we were created to be scientists. And God creates human beings from the dust of the earth and breathes His spirit or breath into them. And human beings are put in the creation." in order to care for it and cultivate it. God is the creator. Human beings are cultivators. We are made to take the raw potential present within creation and do something new with it. Use our God-given creativity to bring out something new and wonderful. John Stott used to like to tell this story of the... um, the vicar, the gardener who was showing the vicar around his wonderful garden that he'd been laboring over and all the beautiful flowers and so on. And the vicar, being a very pious man, said, oh, the wonders of God's handiwork. And uh, the gardener was not very impressed by this. And Stott used to put on a very fake accent and said, the gardener said, you should have seen this here garden, vicar, when the good Lord had it to himself. (laughs) And that's the whole point, isn't it? That God gives the raw potential, but it's human beings, it's us, who have been placed here to draw out, to create, to do something, something new. So God is the creator. Humans are the cultivators. God creates us as moral beings with freedom, but of course we're accountable to God for the choices we make. You're free to eat from any tree of the garden, of course, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You, you must not eat from that tree, for when you eat from it, you will die. And of course, as we know, we move on to the next part of the, part of the great act, and that is the fall. Human beings disobey God, and the fall contaminates every aspect of creation, including the world of work. So work now is cursed. The ground that was made to be cultivated is cursed, and human life and work is condemned to futility. And in those terrible curse in Genesis 3, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. The creation mandates are not overturned or cancelled. We're still called to fulfill God's uh, calling as his representatives, but now we do it in a fallen and broken world. And the Tower of Babel is a graphic example of how work gets corrupted. Do you remember those, those words where the the, the builders say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And that's a parody of the creation where God says, come, let us make human beings. Human creativity is now directed against the purposes of God and it's intended to make a name for ourselves. And then moving rapidly on, God's promises to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and I will bless you and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, so God, now then the next act is using Abraham and the children of Abraham as the means by which he is going to bless all the peoples on the earth. Israel becomes God's chosen people called to reflect God's character and purposes so that all people on earth will be blessed through Israel's witness and obedience and faithful service. And the wisdom literature in particular have a great deal to teach us about work. And one of the fascinating things is what they tell us is that God cares about every aspect of society. And that was the big difference between the God of the Bible and the other ancient gods in the Middle East. People like Baal and Marduk and the others... They cared very much about what went on in their temples, but they didn't care about the rest of life. But the God of the Bible cared passionately about not just what happened in the temple, but also what happened in the marketplace. God is concerned about the defenceless and the fatherless and the widows and the foreigners. The God of the Bible is deeply concerned about economic justice and treatment of the poor and honest legal systems and just government about bribery and corruption and so on and so on. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see a secular perspective on work limited to this world. He describes this as work that is done under the sun. And it's a, it, instead of this global, cosmic, spiritual perspective, it's just under the sun. And so the preacher says, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So my heart began to despair. So work from a purely human perspective becomes futile and meaningless. And in the discussion about this sermon, I'm very grateful to Chris Wright, who pointed out that that passage in Ecclesiastes is a kind of commentary on the passage we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 15. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says all work, all labor under the sun is futile and meaningless, it's vain. Paul says if Christ hadn't been raised, then in effect, the Ecclesiastes preacher is right. Your faith is vain, but... If Christ has been raised, then work is no longer under the sun. No, it's work to the Lord. Work in the Lord. And because it is in the Lord, it is not in vain. And so we we get the person of Christ, the next big act. God himself takes on human form. In the New Testament, Jesus is revealed as the one who holds creation together. Christ himself is the hidden key that unlocks the mystery of the universe. And in John chapter 1, the logos is revealed as the one through whom the whole world was created and as the light that illuminates every person. But then shockingly, the divine logos, the word, becomes flesh, comes into this world and he tabernacles amongst us. And God takes up the very dust of the ground into his own being. The creator works as a carpenter. We tend to sort of glide over that bit, don't we? But actually, you know, if you stop and think about it, that's profoundly significant. Jesus, God in human form, worked as a carpenter. He was taking the raw material of wood and creating something unique and wonderful. And in his miracles, he starts to fulfill the, Isaiah's kingdom promises, healing the sick, feeding the hungry. Jesus dies on the cross and is raised again, and the four gospel writers are all adamant the grave is empty. The body of the risen Jesus has taken up the physical molecules of his old body and brought them into the, a new resurrection form. And then he commissions his astonished disciples, and, and you know the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, go into the world and make disciples. But people often forget the other Great Commission, which is in John chapter 20, where Jesus says to his astonished disciples, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And this is where the idea of incarnational mission comes from. Because Jesus has commissioned us, we are sent out to reach out into a fallen world in the way that Jesus did, living lives of creativity, of witness, of service, of care, of sacrificial love, living out the good news in words and deeds. And so now we come back after that lightning dash through Bible history. We come back to 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection of Jesus represents both the foundation and the irrefutable evidence of the new creation. When Christ is raised as a physical, touchable, recognisable human being, God proclaims his vote of confidence in the original creation order. God is going to make a new world, but it's going to be built out of the old. It's all part of the drama. It's all what it has been intended all along. Jesus' resurrection body is the first glimpse of the new creation, the first fruits of the harvest. And the new creation is going to be the ultimate fulfillment and consummation of the old, and redeemed humanity is central in the story. And at the end of the book of Revelation, right at the end of the narrative, we get John's vision. The new Jerusalem is not situated in the heavenly places, but it descends to the new earth to become the center of the new creation. The new redeemed cosmos is going to become, in one sense, a new temple. The Lamb is at the center, and just as the glory of God fills Solomon's temple, so the glory of God is going to fill the entire cosmos. As the prophet Habakkuk said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in the new creation, the nations of the earth will walk by the light radiating out from the New Jerusalem. And the passage says that the glory and the honor of the pagan nations will be brought into the city. Although we can only speculate, it seems that in some sense, all the most wonderful examples of human creativity, ingenuity, compassion, and care that has ever been in human history is going to be brought into the New Jerusalem. But nothing impure or evil will ever enter it. So let's come back to our verse. Therefore, says Paul, in the light of the resurrection of Christ and all that it means within the great story, the great drama of the universe, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Don't allow yourself to be shaken, to be disturbed. Be wholehearted, be fully committed because you know that your toil, the literal meaning in the Greek is your back-breaking labor in the Lord, in Christ... Within the great story of the cosmos, it's not in vain. So Paul seems to be pointing to, to this great polarity. If Christ did not rise from the dead, we're living in vain. Bible preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. The apostles are liars. You are still in your sins. Those who have died are lost. But if we're living and working in the Lord, if Christ did rise from the dead, our life and work is in the Lord. Your life is built on a firm foundation that cannot be shaken. Your work and painful labor is going to be fruitful and it will last into the new heaven and the new earth. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 19, we have a wonderful image when the bride of Christ appears in all her heart-stopping beauty, arrayed in the most glorious garments. You know, I have a sort of idea that one of the reasons why we just love that bit in a wedding service, when the bride first appears in in her finery, is it's a kind of pre-echo of the great wedding which is going to come, the wedding feast of the Lamb. But what are those wonderful garments, the fine linen in which the bride of Christ is adorned? And what the literal Greek says, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints the righteous acts of God's holy people. In other words, of you and me. Every tiny act of faith and compassion and courage and creativity and self-sacrifice is not lost. It will endure to eternity. And they will all be there, part of the wedding garments of the bride. And then the bride will take everything that she has achieved, the glory in which she has adorned, And she will lay it all willingly at the feet of the bridegroom. Because in the end, it's all about him. So how about you? How are you going to go back to work on Monday morning? Are you going to view your work like the Ecclesiastes preacher as being under the sun? Meaningless, futile, empty, pointless. Or are you going to go back to work in the Lord? To love and care and create and organize and study and research and witness for Christ. I close with these words. Hope is to hear the melody of the future. Faith is to dance to that melody in the present. Let's have a moment of silence as we close. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. Help us to hear that melody of the future. And help us tomorrow morning, as we go back to whatever we're doing, working at homes, in, in workplaces, wherever you've placed us, help us to learn to dance to that melody and to serve you, in the Lord, knowing that our labor and painful toil is not in vain. And we pray it for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen.